Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, do you know why some fish like to swim in salt water? I don't. Because if they swim in pepper water, that would make them sneeze. It's, it's not even a joke. There's no pun. <laughs> it's... John, I've just been feeling in general like my my jokes have been too good lately, so I wanted to toss oh. that one out for you. Oh, and I you're knew trying to take it down a notch to lower my expectations so that when you in a couple weeks you're building up to an amazing joke like <laughs> Euripides, my all-time favorite joke. <laughs> like you have told a funny joke in that segment and every time I think to myself, is this going to be like another Euripides? Is uh. this going to be like the tailor who's named Euripides? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be a good one. fish don't like to swim in pepper water because they might yeah. sneeze, which no part of the joke makes sense. Speaking of no part of anything making sense, how about 2021? Uh, the Project for Awesome is ending as we are uploading this. Yeah, but you, you might have a little bit of time to get in and get those last perks. You might have a little bit of time to still get some perks at projectforawesome.com slash donate. Yes. Wonderful perks that will be gone forever if you do not grab them quickly. I mean, like, don't text and drive, obviously. Pull over, <laughs> put the car in park, and then go to projectforawesome.com slash donate and get your perks, including uh, a Project for Awesome exclusive episode of Dear Hank and John, in case you don't get enough of this crap. <laughs> um, yeah, and thank you for everyone who joined us during the Project for Awesome. We don't know how that went because we're recording before it happened. Hopefully it was okay. I bet it was great. I hope I survived. I think you'll be fine. Mm. It's a good old time. Oh, man, I can't wait for the Mars news this week and next week. <laughs> I can't wait for the uh, AFC Wimbledon news this week, so... Exciting times. This first question comes from Elizabeth, who writes, Dear John and Hank, would it be possible to train a whale to use a very long snorkel that attached to its blowhole so that it could swim underwater forever without coming up for air? What about dolphins in scuba gear? Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> I love, I'm not sure yeah. that this question came from Her Royal Highness. Queen Elizabeth? But I like to imagine <laughs> the possibility that Queen Elizabeth II 
is a regular listener to Dear Hank and John and is very curious about whale snorkels. This seems like the kind of thing that Prince Charles would be into, so I'm a little surprised that it's Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, maybe she's passing it along. Hank, you don't spend as much time as I do thinking about the English royal family. No. But man, do I spend a lot of time thinking about those rascally rabbits. Queen Elizabeth, Hank, wants to know, is it possible for a whale to use a snorkel? Yeah. I mean, I think maybe Prince Charles does and she's just passing it along. That is exactly right. Prince Charles was like, hey, I'm hey, I'm embarrassed to ask this question, but I feel like if you ask it, you'll get an answer. I got a history of wacky ideas, mom, but maybe you can. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple there's a couple potential problems here. I mean, one is that they're already very good at this. Yes. So like like a lot of whales, you're talking about you'd need a very long snorkel because they're they got to go down real deep. And then so you've got some physical limitations here. You need a rigid snorkel so it doesn't like push behind them. And then also the volume of the snorkel, if it's very long, even if it's very skinny, will contain a lot of air. And so if they are not, if their lung capacity is equal to the volume of the interior of the snorkel, then they won't actually get air exchange with the outside world. Mm. There's also a giant pref- pressure differential here. That's going to be a big problem. Uh, there's a number of limitations. The main one, though, is that dolphins and whales are already super good at this. And they don't like it'd be like uh, birds evolving more wings like they don't need more wings. They're good. Like whales. Yeah, probably there is there is an advantage to being able to stay underwater for longer, for especially for like sperm whales who, who are deep sea hunters. But uh, for the for, for the most part, they've got it figured out, man. They're amazing. But I do want to see a dolphin in a scuba suit for sure. Anytime you're inventing an invention. You've got to first ask the question, what problem am I trying to solve? (laughs) And I'm just not convinced that in the case of whales or dolphins, like they have problems. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) It's just that their problems are us. Yeah, largely. And I don't know that uh, certainly a giant snorkel is going to is going to increase their ability to to avoid us, which I suppose so. Alternately. We would just start scanning the ocean for large snorkels. <laughs> that's not, I mean, that's you not know? the biggest problem. We're not- I just, I don't, I don't trust humans any further than I can throw us. And most of us, I can't throw at all. Oh yeah. So I, I feel like we need to probably harness our resources around trying to do a better job of understanding and internalizing and acting out the fact that like it or not, we are now the dominant species on the planet, and we, to a very large extent, decide how things go for whales, at least for the moment. I Now, I think <laughs> in the long arc of history, there's going to come a time yeah. when the whales decide how things go for us. And by the way, if we don't do a good job right now yeah. of deciding how things go for the whales, they, they may remember right. that. Right, yeah, and also that moment will come sooner because... The, the process of no longer become, being the, the dominant species on the planet will be a quicker one. How long have we been truly the dominant species on the planet? Maybe like 60,000 years, 40,000 years? Oh, no, I think less than that. Oh, I think we were, I think we were crushing some large predator populations sure. 40,000 years ago. Yeah, I guess, but like not dominant. We were like a dominant species. We were, to- we were top three. We were not in control. We were not in control of the world. Well, we're still not in control. But most of the thing uh, yeah. that we are not in control of is ourselves. You know what's in control of the world, Hank? A single strand of RNA. <laughs> you want to know? You want to know what's 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 running this ship right now? 
like 700 <laughs> nucleotide pairings. <laughs> I mean, it's not fair, is it? It's not fair. Uh, it's not even a smart. I, I looked at a picture of it. It's not even smart. Yeah. I don't know how long we've been the dominant species, but one thing I do know is that we are, and we need to take that responsibility, in my opinion, at least just, just a smidge more seriously. All right, John, this next question comes from Grace, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm getting my first dose of the Moderna COVID vaccine today. Woo! Due to your previous discussions about how Grover Cleveland is only one man and therefore can only be a singular president, a question occurred to me. Will I be getting one vaccine in two doses or two vaccines? Your thoughts? Not Hazel, just Grace. This is the kind of question, Hank, that we really need to be answering. This is a service that we can provide to the people. <laughs> yeah, it's not like it's not like a medical advice so much as pedantry. Yeah. So we are here for that. And it's very important because it extends my argument that Grover Cleveland cannot be two presidents because he is only one person into new arenas, which helps people understand that Grover Cleveland was not two presidents. Right. And that is the mission of my life. But Grover Cleveland was was inaugurated twice. Sure. Which is the case for Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton yeah. and Barack Obama. Yeah. But there but there's a scientific angle here, which is that there there are some vaccines that are the same vaccine twice. Right. And there are some vaccines that are two different things. Yes. In the case of these mRNA vaccines, like the Moderna vaccine, it is the same vaccine twice. Basically, it's saying uh, we're going to expose your immune system to this protein that is uh, part of the COVID-19 virus. And your immune system will say, oh, that doesn't look great. But but the first time, maybe it's like, oh, well, that didn't have a significant negative impact on me. I'll remember it, but not as like a serious threat. The second time it comes along, your immune system says, oh, okay, so this is the thing that I'm going to see more than once. So I'm actually going to create some robust systems to prevent you from getting this disease. And that's why with the mRNA vaccines and with many vaccines, we have this booster system where it's like first exposure and second exposure to the same vaccine, which is the case in this case, but not with all COVID vaccines. Um, there are a couple that are, are actually two different things. And and in the case of those mRNA vaccines, you are getting two doses of one, one vaccine. vaccine. Yes. And so you are getting a vaccine that comes in two shots, which are spaced apart. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of there being a slightly different formulation to the booster shot, and this is where it's going to get controversial, Grace, uh -huh. so strap in. <laughs> You are still getting two doses of one vaccine. It's just that the second part of the one vaccine that you are getting has a different formulation from the previous part, but it is still one vaccine. Yeah. The only way you can get two vaccines is if you're in this hypothetical group that I don't think exists yet, but that has been talked about where like mm -hmm. some people might get the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine and the second dose of the Moderna vaccine. In that case, which I don't think has happened yet, but if it were to happen, that would arguably be two vaccines because that is a Grover Cleveland and a Millard Fillmore <laughs> both entering your body, not two Grover Clevelands. Yeah, though, though it's, this is another thing. Like, is the vaccine the individual formulation or is the vaccine whatever system is used to vaccinate you? So you could make the case that even in that even in that hypothetical, which is a thing that people are talking about, like as a just in case measure, if there are doses available for one and not the other, would that be a single vaccination, but with two vaccines? I guess that would be the case. To me, yes, that's exactly what it is. 
it's the presidency is still the presidency, but in one part of the presidency, Millard Fillmore has it, and in another part, Grover Cleveland has it. Now, I know right. there are lots of people out there. I'm just going to I'm going to head off these emails at the pass. Lots of people are going to say, if it's two different formulations, then it's one Millard Fillmore and it's one Grover Cleveland. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It's Grover Cleveland at one time in his life and Grover Cleveland at a second right. time in his life. A slightly different Grover Cleveland. <laughs> Maybe he's put on a few pounds. <laughs> the stress of the presidency has worn him out a little bit. You know, Yeah, he's, he's learned some things. Yes. Yeah. He's not the same Grover Cleveland that he was, but he is the same person. That he was. And now Ergo, he yeah. is the same president that he was and the same vaccine in my very extended metaphor. But you can also make the case that I'm not really the same person I was five years ago. Mm. I oftentimes think I have already had many small deaths. I am not who I once was in, you know, in some ways I am. But in many ways, I, I, I don't know. I, I might argue that in most ways I am not. Mm, um, I think certainly that, from like when I was five till now, not really similar guys. But there's a lot of continuity between those. For one thing, you have the same brother the whole time, <laughs> incredibly supportive and loving and gets so little credit, but it's the same person. <laughs> but for another thing, I, I agree, like self is a self is a fiction that we whisper to ourselves to keep going for sure. No doubt. But like <laughs> it, it it's a useful fiction. And and it's not just a fiction because we change. It's a fiction because, like, we're living inside of a body made out of meat. Like, we're just a, a series of chemical reactions. So, like, mm -hmm. I think that you're the same person. But I, I, I do relate to what you're saying in the sense that I look back on things that I did even, like, five years ago. Like, I'll watch, like, an interview of me during the press junket of the Fault in Our Stars movie. And I'll be, like, looking into that person's eyes and I know what he's thinking. And, <laughs> and I'll just be like, wow. That guy feels very distant from me. Mm -hmm. Like, I do not, I actually feel a much closer connection to the, like, me who at the age of 27 fell in love with Sarah than I do to, like, the me who at the age of 38 was on a press junket. Right. I often will witness my own self and think, I would not make that decision. Oh, yeah. I mean, all, all kinds. It's like the phenomenon where you read your writing from oh, boy. 10 years ago and you're like, oh, oh God. Oh, no, <laughs> no. It, I hate yeah, it. And it's good. It's good to have, you know, 15 years of YouTube videos up there <laughs> just staring you in the face being like, who the heck is that guy? Well, how did yeah, we, when he decided to hump the statue of the elk, did he have to do it from behind? Yeah. Like both. Who is that guy? And. <laughs> how how do I put that particular genie back yeah, in the yeah, bottle? Yeah. Like how how do I unmake that decision? It's like it's which of the things I've done on YouTube truly disqualify me from public office? Like not like there's one, but let's rank them. Yeah, is humping the elk from behind number one? I feel like it's it, very high up. It's there. pretty high up there. I think that an attack ad that was nothing but <laughs> clips of you humping inanimate objects around the city of Missoula would make it really difficult for you to become the no, mayor of Missoula. Uh, look, no, I, I, I rebroadcast it and all it's, it's just the same footage except it says, I love this town. <laughs> it's got, context is everything, man. Speaking of which, we should probably provide some context for the 85% of our listeners who don't know what we're referring to Hank made a video, and I still don't know like the context in which this happened. It was a punishment. Okay, Hank made a video where, as a punishment, he humped 
H-U-M-P-E-D, in case I'm not pronouncing it clearly enough. He humped many, many landmarks in, in Missoula, Montana. <laughs> yeah, as many as I could. Pretty much everything that is a landmark. And it seemed like a hilarious idea 12 years ago. It was very But even funny. now, like, if you go and you read the comments, like the recent comments, because that video is still on the internet. Yeah. You... Which is part of our policy. When possible, we leave our dumb videos on the yeah. internet as a form of ongoing public shame, mm-hmm. I guess. But like when you go and read the most recent comments of that video, it's a lot of people who are like, uh, this guy is America's chemistry teacher. <laughs> and I realize that we're making all of this much worse by talking about it. But one week ago, Darby commented, I had to pause this and take a short walk in my dorm to get over the secondhand embarrassment in order to finish the video. The next most recent comment, it's so bizarre to think that I have visited every single permanent location that Hank has humped. This is the only video that lives rent-free in my head. I I cannot wait until TikTok discovers this. I love the comment from three weeks ago. Wow, you taught me so much in high school. (laughs) Imagine visiting Missoula to try and see Hank Green and ending up, yeah, you saw him. (laughs) Hello, should I show this to my science teacher? Oh, <laughs> you look like the dude from PBS Eons. That's the best one. <laughs> no. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, one oh. vaccine, Grace. That was that was the question. <laughs> oh God. Which John? It reminds me of a question that we got from Ember, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, not long ago, Hank posted a video of himself finding a taxidermied squirrel on the way to work." My husband overheard me listening to it and was curious because Hank was singing about the squirrel in the video. And then he asked, what is Hank's job? And I realized I have no idea what on earth Hank does for a living. I know he wrote a couple of books and does a lot of podcasts. And I think he works for some kind of environmental company at some point. And he sure does talk an awful lot about being busy. So I assume he does something. What does Hank do? Feel the burn. Ember. Nice. That's good. I I don't really know what Hank does, so I'll be interested to see how he answers this question. God, I well, it's it's a it is a it is an evolving situation. I continue to be doing a number of things. I am a professional TikToker. That's new. Yeah, you make money from TikTok. I do. You better and donate that money to Partners in Health, otherwise, actually, I, you you have to. It's a requirement. My TikTok audience has selected a, a separate charity. I let them decide where I donate it. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, that's good. We so we John and I started an educational media company together called Complexly. It makes shows like PBS Eons and Crash Course and SciShow and a bunch of other shows. And I I run that business, which means a lot of meetings. Um, trying to get business, trying to get shows funded, uh, trying to be there for our employees and never being there as much as I should be. Yeah. And trying to have that that company continue existing. And I also do that with another company called DFTBA.com where, where we help creators create products and merchandise and, and sell those to their communities. And likewise, I'm plenty of meetings for that business. And likewise, I try to be there for the employees of that company. I'm also am not there for them enough. <laughs> so it is in general, uh, too many things and a lot of responsibility and a lot of great people who work really hard and who I am tremendously in debt to. 
As far as the how does Hank make a living portion of mm. the question. That's a good point. Hank gets paid a salary yeah. by Complexly uh-huh. and he gets paid a small salary by DFTBA.com. But the majority of money that Hank makes. Yeah is from book sales. That is correct. You've you've got you've got it in one, John. And people often ask how I make a living and in my case I I I make a very small salary from Complexly and then I make almost all of my money from book sales. So, yeah. That's how that's how that's how the money part of it works. Yeah. But my job, the thing that I spend most of my time on is Complexly and DFTBA. Yeah. But that's not, it's not where, where I you make get most of my money. The money. No. Which is nice. That those companies don't have to have expensive CEOs. They can have me. Yeah, I mean, there's a downside. You know, you get a cut rate CEO, you pay a cut rate price. (laughs) 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 I'm just kidding. I'm very grateful to you for being our cut rate CEO, (laughs) because if it weren't you, it'd be somebody who's way worse, me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, speaking of DFTBA, Hank, this question comes from Allison, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I've purchased two hoodies from DFTBA.com and both have a small pocket on the inside of the hoodie pocket. Mm-hmm. What is this pocket for DFTBA Allison? I have also noticed this, Hank, because I also have some DFTBA <laughs> hoodies. I bought them just so I'm not a- accused of double dealing. I bought them and there is there is a pocket inside of the pocket. It's like you think that you're a marsupial, but it turns out that it's a, it's a it's an inception situation. Right. Where even the marsupial has a marsupial. Right. So there's you you got your hands in your pouch. Yeah. And then there's a pocket inside the pouch. Right. What's it for? You know, I don't know, but like it does see, <laughs> it does seem nice. It does seem like a perk. Does it's it? It's like, oh hey, another pocket. Like whoever has said, oh no, too many pockets. An extra pocket is great. I guess you could like slide a, a single credit card in there or something. So I guess if you want to go like running in a hoodie with only your ID and a credit card and a $10 bill, that's now possible. <laughs> I still wouldn't trust it. If it doesn't have a zipper, I don't put I don't put things in hoodie pockets that I, I don't want to lose. Yeah. So after consulting, we don't know what the purpose of that pocket is, but we kind of like it. Actually, that reminds me, Hank, that today's podcast is is sponsored by DFTBA.com. DFTBA.com, putting more pockets in your hoodies than you would ever expect. Surprise pockets! This podcast <laughs> is also brought to you by The Self, a lie that we whisper to ourselves. And today's podcast is brought to you by America's favorite cut-rate CEO, Hank Green. Hank Green, he's the... Not the CEO you deserve or the CEO you need right now, but he is. You, you can't beat him on price. <laughs> I, I think you're. I think you're a really good CEO, and I feel like we've been way too hard on you in this bit. But yeah, well, I like the bit. And this podcast is also sponsored by the elk. In that humping video, the elk statue at the Missoula Art Museum. They have since removed it. <laughs> They had to. I mean, it became a tourist attraction with thousands of Google reviews. I came here on a pilgrimage to see Hank Green humping. John, there will not be an episode of the podcast next week, just so everybody knows that. Um, we were we were taking a break because uh, we need to recover after the Project for Awesome, which, yeah. as you are listening, is, to, is today is the day after the Project for Awesome. As we are recording, that is the day we would usually record, and so we are sleeping. Yeah, one of the joys of being an independent podcast, again, is that we can take some time off, and yeah. we don't want to take 
a lot of time off because we like talking to each other and we like hearing from y'all. But occasionally we do need to take a week off and this week is one of them. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt. I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it. So it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. John, I have a really important question from Gracie, a question I never thought to ask myself, but I feel like you are the right person to ask. Dear Hank and John, how many popes per square mile are there in the Vatican City? Feeling spacey, Gracie. God, what a great question. What a good question. So, Gracie, there are a lot of angles to your question. Yeah, The first and most important thing to know is that there are currently Mm -hmm. more popes in the Vatican City per square mile than at any time in recorded history. Because assuming that you count retired popes Uh as like Pope Emeritus's or whatever, because right right now we have two. We have a pope, Pope Francis, and we've got retired former pope, but not content to like be completely retired periodically, (laughs) uh, making himself heard again in public Catholic spaces, Pope Benedict. And so John, before before you go here, yeah. I, I have to first, mathematically, if you are only counting the current pope, right. who is technically the only pope at the moment, yes. It, then there are five popes per square mile in the Vatican City. That that is incorrect. There is one pope for every one fifth of a mile in the Vatican City because That's the same you, thing. You can't have five popes per square mile. No. no. <laughs> nope. That's an example of you using the magic of algebra, knowing that I don't understand it, to to try to make something that I know isn't true, because uh-huh. there can't be five popes per square mile, because there can't be five popes. So the answer to the question is that there is one pope for every one-fifth of a square mile in the Vatican City, unless you count Pope Benedict as being a kind of Pope Emeritus, in which case there are two popes for every one-fifth of a square mile in the Vatican City, unless one or both of them is not currently in the Vatican City. The real question uh-huh. if, is— If you count all of the dead popes. Yes. And, the, and also the retired pope. If you count 
all of the popes uh-huh. in the Vatican City right now, including those who have passed away, but their remains are in the Vatican City. I have a number, John. How many popes per square miles do we have, Hank? We have 510, which is, again, more than the total number of popes there have been. But because it's only a fifth of a square mile, you have to multiply that by five. Wait, what? There's only been 105 popes? That's wrong. No, uh, 164 of them are buried elsewhere. Oh, yeah, that's what I would want. Yeah. So there are, there I mean, are about it's 100... a little hard for me to engage in the hypotheticalization of imagining what my life would be like if I were Pope, but I think I would want to be buried in Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> Next to all the vice presidents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just I up mean, on there on that, that tomb at the top of the hill. Just be like... I feel very strongly about being buried in Crown Hill Cemetery because it, it gets just so much tourism traffic from being the home of more dead vice presidents than any other location on earth. I mean, you should see... Crown Hill on a Wednesday morning. I mean, the tourists just come in by the thousands. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's always me alone walking there. I'm the only person who who regularly walks there. There's a couple other like high level cyclists who use the hill in Crown Hill to mm-hmm. you know experience what it, it passes for topography in Indianapolis, but. Yeah, it's mostly just me looking at those old vice presidents. I love this sentence. Approximately 100 papal tombs are at least partially extant. So we don't exactly know, which is amazing. There is an area that is a fifth of a square mile, and we're not sure how many popes are in it. Yeah. Approximately. Well, welcome to history, Hank. I mean, it's all like that. There's there's a lot we don't know. Just go through. Just no, it's not do, that easy. Just uh, do a cross-sectional walk. The records aren't that count good. Count the popes you come across. But we don't know for sure if we're coming across a pope. That's true. And there also, there, there there's, I, I think, a number of levels. It's not just like sort of a flat area. There's below and above ground structure. Sure. For, like for, if I've learned anything cities. from Dan Brown, it's that the Vatican City <laughs> goes a long way down. All right. There's either one pope yeah. or 500 or two, depending on how you construct the various definitions. This next question comes from Catherine, who writes, Dear John and Hank, in sci-fi movies set in space, characters almost never experience weightlessness inside their spaceships. They just walk around as if they're on Earth. Now, obviously, this is a story convenience, but I think Star Trek explains it away by saying that the Enterprise has artificial gravity. But is mm-hmm. that possible in real life? What kind of technology would be required to simulate gravity inside of a spaceship? Could any of it ever be practical for space travel in the real world? Uh, no. Well, OK, so there are so there is um, artificial gravity where we sort of hand wave, which is Star Trek, where they just say there's artificial gravity and it, it's. It's not really explained as to how it is created. We, from our current understanding of how gravity works, there isn't a way to do that. So to to create the gravity field, you would have to create the mass, and then you'd have to push the mass around, which would be entirely impractical because it would be the mass of the Earth. (laughs) So, So to create that kind of just like artificial gravity through some kind of gravitational field, we don't think that's possible. Now, it might be, but we don't think it is. Now, there are also actual ways to create gravity-like things in space, um, and that would be spinning structures. So you have uh, a ring or you have a cylinder, and that ring or cylinder spins, and that creates a, a force as you spin along because, you know, a- as you are moving, the, sort of the ground is sort of always curving as if you are in a carnival game 
being squished against the floor. And if you have a large That's enough- That's my favorite kind of gravity. That'd be fun. I would yeah. I would love that version of space travel where I barf on the people next to me every <laughs> like eight seconds for years and years. Well, so, so the, the trick of this is if the ring is big enough, then it does, it just feels like gravity. Now, if the ring is small, you have these the, the, the situation where your head actually experiences a noticeably different amount of gravity than your feet. And that is- uh, mm. would be pretty disorienting. Um, and so you'd need to construct a really big ring or cylinder in order to create gravity that would be comfortable for the average person and it would be like healthy to be in. But that is totally doable. Like there isn't a technical limit on our ability to make a big ring in space. In fact, there are lots of ways that people imagine that we could do this. My favorite is hollowing out an asteroid. I think that that's our, that's our, main, mm. our main space future is living on the inside of asteroids because- Living in a space uh, station just has all kinds of cosmic ray particle problems where you just your cancer risk goes way up. Right. But if you live on the inside of an asteroid, you can create a very large uh, amount of asteroid between you and space, and that will protect you. But it'll be dark in there, and so you have to find other ways of getting light, uh, so you need a lot of energy. Anyway, that's I'm a big fan of that. Not a, not no work. Uh, you know, we we don't know how to do a lot of things but we can imagine how to do them. Like we can't imagine how to create a gravity field. We can imagine moving an asteroid into orbit around Earth, uh, carving out a big area of the inside of it, spinning it up, and then having people live on the interior of that. So there's no like technical reason why we couldn't, except for just resources and also, you know, I I personally don't know how to hollow out an asteroid, and I don't think that anyone does. But you could imagine it being done. Yeah, I think you just use a like a an advanced sort of spoon. Yeah, you, you need know? some kind of robotics, just, a very hot robotic spoon. Just carve it out a little bit at a time. Yeah, and then the advantage of that is that you know if you use a metallic asteroid to do that, which would probably be the best kind to use because those are pretty sturdy, you also get a lot of metal, and uh, a lot of yeah. people are interested in that metal for its uses on Earth or in space. You could use it to forge the hardest rocking heavy metal band of all time. Potentially, or it could just be, you know, steel that we could build buildings with. Boring. Or for batteries, cobalt. Well, why have cobalt when you can have rock and roll? Well, I think, I think space rock and roll will be very interesting, John. We'll have to see what that looks like. I am excited for what music sounds like in different kinds of atmospheres. <laughs> I feel like that's going to be one of the first things yeah. that we try to figure out. I, I forgot about the uh, other kind of artificial gravity, John. Oh, great. If you're still curious. I'm very curious. So the, a, a popular show right now is The Expanse. And The Expanse, um, you will sometimes see people walking around with, in like mag boots, basically. So they're like clamped to the floor. Right. So they're walking around, but it's... It's it sort of like looks like artificial gravity, but it's not. They're just sort of magneted to the floor. But the they do also have a kind of gravity or artificial gravity in the expanse, which is just that their ships go very fast. So the ships are constantly accelerating at like 9.8 meters per second per second, which if if the ship is moving that fast, if the rocket engine is is pushing out from below and you are standing like basically right on top of the engine, then it's pushing up into you mm. and that is creating the the gravity of the expanse. And so in the books, ships go at different speeds basically to simulate different gravities. Mm. And then when they've reached the halfway point in their travels, they just turn around, decelerating at 9.8 meters per second. And then you are still have that artificial gravity. That would require just a trip, like a tremendous 
change in how we accelerate spacecrafts that we currently don't have. Right. Uh, because we just need a lot more reaction mass than we can currently carry around. Reaction mass being the stuff that you spit out the back of the spacecraft in order to create the acceleration. It's funny you should mention that because reaction mass is also the name of my hypothetical heavy metal band. It's pretty good. It is. It's a great, it's a great band name. <laughs> Hank, as you know, AFC Wimbledon fired their manager, Glenn Hodges, after 14 consecutive league games without a win, mm -hmm. including a devastating loss to the franchise currently plying its trade in Milton Keynes. Mm -hmm. The new interim manager, Mark Robinson, uh, coaches our kids. <laughs> oh, God. John, do you think you'd be a good soccer coach? I'd you be might, great. You, like, one of the things I've been thinking about is that is that expertise is important, but not as important as, like, dedication and shared values. Do you have the dedication and shared values to be the, the new coach of AFC Wimbledon? No. Do you have the ability to reside legally in the United Kingdom. <laughs> also, no. There are a lot of reasons why I would not be a good uh, okay. coach for AFC Wimbledon. But for a long time, Mark Robinson coached the under-18 AFC Wimbledon team. And he not only did he have amazing results, the kind of like loyalty and love that his players have for him is like something I have almost never seen in football. He's been with the team as a youth coach since almost the very beginning of the Wimbledon rebirth. He's worked his way up first as the under-18s manager, then eventually as the first team coach and the loans manager. And now he is having an opportunity as the interim manager of AFC Wimbledon. And I have to say, personally, I am rooting. I mean, I I would love for him to become the permanent manager because he's just, he is, to, to your point, he is one of those people who just makes you believe. Yeah. You know, he just, like, you listen to him talk and and you believe it's possible. You believe that the impossible is possible. You want to run through walls. So in his first league game in charge, we were playing Wigan Athletic on the road. We went up 2-0, which, of course, we all know how that ends, right? I mean, we've, <laughs> oh, no. we've, we've spent enough time loving oh, AFC no. Wimbledon this season to know what a 2-0 lead means. It means that Wigan are going to score two goals. It's going to be 2-2. And then in the 88th minute, Wigan are going to score a third goal, and it's going to be 3-2, and we're going to lose just like we, we lose every game. And that has happened so many times that, like, as a fan, I was thinking, oh, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. But no, no. Mark Robinson just made made them believe, made them believe different, made them believe that something else was possible. And instead of giving up a goal at the end of the game and losing three to two, dang, Joe Piggott didn't score his second goal of the game and we won three to two, taking us out of the relegation zone for the first time in <laughs> several weeks. And suddenly we're in, we're in 19th place with not that bad of a goal difference. And I think that we might be on our way to the playoffs. <laughs> well, I mean, the main thing is like winning your first game in 12 games. I know. And we have the same players. The only difference is, I, I mean, I really, really, if you have a chance, and I know that most of the people who listen to this podcast are not fans of third tier English soccer, 
But if you have a chance, go on YouTube and listen to one of Mark Robinson's post-game interviews because they sound nothing like any regular manager's post-game interviews. Mm. He sounds like an actual human being talking to you about the actual human work of trying to win football games. It's really lovely and arresting, and I, I am rooting for him so, so hard. What should we take from the reality that Wigan Athletic is the second worst team in the league? Nothing. I mean, we were losing to everybody, Hank. So it doesn't <laughs> okay. it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter one one little bit. We 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 were losing to everybody. Okay. So the fact that we won that game is huge. Obviously, I mean, to be honest with you, from my perspective, like those are the games we got to win. We've yeah, you know, absolutely. We've got if you lose that game, yeah, we have twenty games left in the season, and we need like twenty two points from those games. And if we beat the people below us, we should be mostly okay. All right. Well, good. I'm glad. Um, The Mars news right now is tight. It's exciting, It's uh, but it is also about the future, and it is uh, also a little scary because it's time for all the Mars stuff that was happening in July, Mm. all of those launches, to start arriving. And so by the time this podcast airs, two of them should have arrived. And one more will be only a few days away. The first two will be the UAE's AMOL orbiter, which is scheduled to get to Mars on the 9th. And the next day, on the 10th, it will be joined by Tianwen-1, an orbiter-rover combo sent by China. It has already sent back its first picture of Mars, taken from about 1.4 million miles away. So that's week one of arrivals. And then coming soon after will be the Perseverance rover, which will be making its final descent on the 18th. And NASA will be doing a live stream on that day. I don't know what I will be doing, but I imagine I'll be doing something. So follow me on Twitter while it's happening. It will be terrifying. Yeah. Because, you know. But it, it, potentially ugh. so exciting. Well, if yeah. It happens. Yes. But yeah, that's a, Yes. I remember the nerves of oh, the God. day. Curiosity was terrifying. Yeah. Ugh. But then. But so good. It was one of the purest shared joys I can remember experiencing of that entire decade. So Uh I know that a lot can go wrong and I know that there's uh, not a lot that can be done when things go wrong uh, (laughs) so many millions of miles away. (laughs) But I, yeah, I will be watching with you and um, just trying to send good wishes and support to all of the people who have worked so, so hard for many, many years uh, for this moment. Yeah, super excited. And uh, best of luck to all of the mission scientists uh, for missions that are arriving at Mars. I love I love that it's it, like due to the necessity of of orbits, it happens in these like collective moments where all these missions arrive at the same time and all of them launch at the same time. So it's been a while since we've had one of those. Uh, so it's it's exciting to have some new Mars news. I mean, in any case, Curiosity is still an ongoing and successful mission, and so like there, there, there will there will be, uh, you know, that mission still going on. Uh, but ideally, we'll have two new rovers on the Red Planet in a matter of weeks. Super exciting. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, Hank. Thank you for potting with me. Thanks to everybody for listening. And thank you for sending in your questions at hankandjohn at gmail.com. We're sorry for all the questions we don't answer, but thank you for sending them. They are super helpful. So many. And even, even your corrections, <laughs> although I don't often agree with them. John, if you have any Project for Awesome perks that you have not got, I think that if you go right now on Monday or Tuesday, they will still be up and available, and then they will never be available again. So go and get them. 
Um, uh, we are off now to record our Patreon-only podcast, This Weekend Stuff. That will be fun at patreon.com slash dearhankandjohn, which helps to fund Complexly's work. And we're, we'll just be talking about whatever is bringing us a little bit of joy right now. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tunamedish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Devoki Chakravarti. The music you're hearing now at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome. 